Today, we're going to throw out the politics with the bathwater to talk about renewable energy and what's really happening in the United States. We've been producing energy with fossil fuels. That's coming to an end. With all of the push to go to zero CO2 emissions by 2040, the growth in the renewable energy space is going to blow you away. Stay tuned for all this and more on Let's Make Work Optional. Welcome to this episode of Let's Make Work Optional with True Wealth and Company in Overland Park, Kansas. True Wealth and Company incorporates strategies and products of the super rich to help you reach your financial goals and make work optional. And now, here's Brian Sarf, President and CEO of True Wealth and Company. Welcome to Let's Make Work Optional. I'm Brian Sarf. We're here every Tuesday at 5 a.m., and I hope you are too. You can find the Let's Make Work Optional podcast on iTunes, Anchor.fm, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today, we have a special guest in the studio, Kai Gal from Kiwit. He's the Director of Research and Strategy for Kiwit Power, and we're excited to have him in to talk about this big shift in America from fossil fuel to renewable energy Welcome to the podcast, Kai. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. So how did you get started in this business with Kiwit and kind of talk about your path of where you're at today at Kiwit? Sure. So I am a financial guy by trade. Before I joined Kiwit, I worked at a financial services company, a bank, for about four years and obtained my chartered financial analyst certification and decided to go a different route. And a buddy at Kiwit called me up and said, hey, come over and try power. And here I am, been with the company for about six years, uh, currently manage our research and strategy group for, for Kiwit Power. What kind of impact is Kiwit having in the power industry, and what are some of the longer-term goals for Kiwit? Well, Kiwit, according to ENR, which is a magazine that ranks all the engineering, procurement, construction companies, we are number one in fossil fuel power plants. That's awesome. Yeah. Fossil fuel power plants, those are going by the wayside though, right? Well, the, that's the trend. We're heading toward decarbonization and the renewables going forward, but natural gas and coal are still at the core of power generation today. Well, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you in was to talk about and really help our audience understand what this means to shift from a coal-fired plant that's generating electricity, that we've been going through this shift to natural gas and kind of talk about the differences between coal-fired and natural gas that's producing electricity. And now we're moving to this new phase of renewables that we want to spend most of the show talking about, but I kind of want to walk our listeners there to get to renewables. Sure, let's do it. Yeah, so talk about coal-fired power plants and how they work and operate, why we want to get rid of them, and what the shift was to natural gas. Right, so coal-fired power plant has long been the main source of power generation in our country. Mm-hmm. So you all know coal-fired generation is dirty because it emits a lot of CO2 and other... Like all the ash it, it produces, you have to haul away. Correct, after. you know, sulfur dioxide mm-hmm. and, you know, mercury, stuff like that, right? So back in 2010-2011 timeframe, there was a big push to put scrubbers on these coal power facilities. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you have to retire them and replace them with natural gas or cleaner power generation technologies. So we've seen a huge ramp up in natural gas fire power plants. And the 2018 was actually one of the highest years we've ever seen mm. with about 18 gigawatts of natural gas power plants going into operation. So 18 gigawatts, put that in perspective so that means something because I don't know what in the world 18 gigawatts Yeah, means. so typically uh, one megawatt can uh, supply about 1,000 households. 
So 18,000 megawatts or 18 gigawatts is about 18 million households. That's a lot of households. Yeah, that's correct. So how many natural gas plants did you convert from coal to natural gas over the past eight or nine years? Specifically Kiwit? Yes. Okay. So Kiwit, we've been in the power business since the late 1990s. And I think we've done over 70,000 megawatts of natural gas fired power plants. And uh, in addition to natural gas, I want to mention that we also do renewables, transmission, distribution. I think all in, we've done over 120,000 megawatts of power generation facilities in the U.S. and Canada. And what percentage of the market is that? Well, uh, that's uh, more difficult to, to say because so currently the U.S. market is a little over 1,000 gigawatts. So there's retirement every year. There's new additions every year. So I can't give you a specific market share, but you know we've built a lot of the power plant in the past five to 10 years. Yeah, it's a superpower of Kiwits. That's right. Being able to produce electricity that we need every day. So when I wake up at three in the morning and I stumble around my house that I can flick on the light in the bathroom and it works. That's right. I mean, Kiwit is not a power generation company, but we support our clients to produce Electricity, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So we made the shift from coal to natural gas. What's the reduction in carbon by using a natural gas plant to generate electricity versus coal? It's about 50%. Okay. So on dollar, I mean, on, I'm sorry, ton per megawatt hour basis, coal emits about 2,000 pounds per megawatt hour, whereas natural gas emits about 1,000. So you get a 50% reduction to natural gas. That's correct. Which is great to get a reduction, but it's not where we want to be in the U.S. And the and what's the goal to get to zero CO2? What's the big stated goal by the government and the states and what are they pushing for? In recent years, there has been a big push towards decarbonization. So 0% emission or 100% renewables by 2040 to 2050 timeframe. States such as California, New York, Massachusetts have proposed and approved these goals. So under that time frame, as you can imagine, we cannot continue to build coal nor natural gas. So solar, wind, offshore wind, battery storage become the more viable and the obvious solution under a such timeline. Why couldn't you continue to build natural gas facilities today in 2019? So from an investment standpoint, as you all know, you need time to recoup your investment Mm -hmm. and make money on your investment. So what's the recoup time on a natural gas plant? Typically, the the operating life of a natural gas plant is 40 years. Mm -hmm. So you need at least 15 to 20 to recoup your money. Really? And the rest of the the operating life, you make money. So from a net present value standpoint, you, you make 10 to 15%, depending on where you're at, right? Hmm. That's quite a payback period for a plant like that. That's correct. These facilities are typically multiple billions of dollars investment. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a big risk. So when you look at a natural gas facility that's generating electricity, what's the footprint it takes up in acreage to to set up one of those plants? Do you have any idea? I know it's smaller than a coal-fired plant. Yeah. I just don't know what the ratio is. I know it's smaller, though. It's much smaller. I don't have the specific figure. So what about in renewables? If we look at using wind and solar, what's the footprint that they're going to use to generate power today? And then what's the trend going forward? Yeah, it takes uh, a lot more land, obviously, to build wind. So today, onshore, each wind tower, wind turbine, will produce three to four megawatts of, of power. So you have to spread them out half a mile each, right? So it requires many, many acres of land to build a wind farm, let's say, 
that's 100 to 200 megawatts. Just drive through western Kansas and you can see a few of them. That's right, yeah. Solar farms, you know, take a lot smaller, you know, land because they're more concentrated from a power density standpoint. So each panel is about 200 watt. So you can do the math. So you can probably fit a few megawatts onto a, a few acres. So Interesting. Yeah. So talk about this trend of renewables that are being put into service to generate electricity here in America. How many facilities have you all built at Kiwit for the power companies? In renewables, we have a long history in both wind and solar. Mm-hmm. I think today we've built over 20,000 megawatts of wind and solar. That market is, is taking off very quickly. Mm-hmm. 2020 is bound to be a peak year for renewables. I think a market projection is calling for over 25 gigawatts of wind and solar coming online in 2020. Say that again, 20,000 gigawatts? 25,000 megawatts, so 25 gigawatts. 25 gigawatts. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going back and forth between megawatt and, and gigawatt. So 25 know. gigawatts of renewable generated power will be online by the end of 2020. In a single year, 25 gigawatts will come online in 2020, just between solar and onshore wind. I mean, that's pretty massive. That's a lot. Where's all that being built at? Where are those solar plants being built? Where are the uh, wind farms being built? They are everywhere. So wind, we're seeing a lot of activity in Texas, Mm -hmm. in the Midwest, uh, as well as the Northeast. Solar, where the sun shines the most, that's California, the Southwest, the smile states. That's right, exactly. Florida, right? Those We're seeing a lot of activity in those states. So do they typically own the land already to install those solar panels on, or do they have to go out and purchase the land, or how does that set up? So if it's under a utility model, typically the utilities would already own the land. If a developer is, is developing the project, they could have a land option, then that can turn into a permanent purchase. There are different models on acquiring land. On the facilities that Kiwit is building in the marketplace, are they only for power generation for utility companies, or are you also building structures for corporations or for individuals or communities that want to do some some generation on their own? We typically focus on the larger projects. So our our main clients are the developers, the the utilities uh, of the world. We don't do any commercial or residential installations. What's the most interesting project you've worked on in renewables? Well, I got to say that I've taken on a a newer role recently, which I'm leading our offshore wind pursuits uh, for Kiwit. So I got to tell you that, you know, offshore wind is is a very interesting market and uh, is about to take off in a big way in the Northeast. So I I think they are very interesting. What does offshore wind mean? I don't know what that that means. You're building a wind farm 20 miles in the ocean. And uh, there's a foundation that allows the, the wind tower to stand on the seabed. And these wind turbines are typically much larger. We're talking about three to four times the size of an onshore wind. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. What can they generate in megawatts? Today, there are nine to 10 megawatts. And the next generation of wind turbines are targeting 12 to 15 megawatts. What's holding back the ability of, those, of each of those wind towers to generate much more electricity than today it's three to four the big ones offshore nine to ten the future is 12 to 15 what's the big point where 10x is where it's 120 to 150 megawatts for those wind towers right so you you need the blades to be longer or you need the towers to be taller obviously the taller you get the bigger you get there are permitting challenges Mm -hmm. so i think permitting and the law of physics obviously is preventing turbine sizes to become larger we just can't change the laws of physics that's exactly right yeah 
out in the ocean, you know, you have more flexibility with the height and the size of your wind turbines and uh, uh, the, the blades and the, the towers. What are the risks of the wind towers or the maintenance um you know, issues. You obviously have maintenance with a coal-fired plant. You have maintenance with a natural gas-fired plant. You have different maintenance concerns with the wind farms and with solar farms. I, I'm just not familiar with what that maintenance would look like or what it would be. So onshore, all you need is, you know, a few guys and a crane in order to maintain the wind turbines if you need to take it down. But typically, you just have a guy climb up the tower and maintain the wind turbine, the nacelle. So then the company that's buying it or the developer buying it would work into their budget a maintenance program so if you have a blade that breaks or it the turbine breaks or something else falls apart on that then they've got to have some money set aside to maintain those because I know every time I drive through western Kansas there are many of them that are down that aren't running they either have a broken blade or it's just been down for a while and you just don't see those come back up very often. It must be expensive to fix. That's right. You know, typically there's a long-term service agreement, mm-hmm. either with uh, the blade manufacturer or the turbine manufacturer. Those agreements typically are 15 to 20 years. So if something breaks, they'll come back and fix whatever's broken under mm-hmm. the agreement. What's the payback on the wind and solar? Um, we said natural gas is 40-year life. The payback's 15 to 20 years. What are we looking at for a lifespan for wind and solar and maybe what payback would be if you if you know some of those? Yeah, so I think uh, there's a lot of interest in wind and solar nowadays from mm-hmm. the investment community. I think uh, levered uh, return on those projects range from 7 to to 9%. Uh, right now, they're typically lower than a natural gas firepower plants mm-hmm. simply because there's so much interest in these projects and there isn't enough projects to allow for all those investment money to come in. What does it cost to buy to generate you know, three megawatts of power from one wind tower? Right. What does it cost to build one of those wind towers? Okay, so in, in the power space, we speak in, in terms of dollar per kilowatt or dollar per megawatt. Okay. So a typical gas combined cycle costs about 1000 to $1,200 per kilowatt. A gas simple cycle, which is just the gas turbine burning natural gas, ranges, you know, from six to eight hundred dollars per kilowatt, uh, depending on the location. Uh, solar and wind is probably between twelve hundred to fourteen hundred dollars. So obviously, labor rate plays into it. Production of wind blades and all that plays into the total cost of a specific project. And also then the solar panels themselves and how efficient they are in turning sunlight into electricity. And there's been a number of advancements. Um, I was at a conference last May, and the gentleman from an energy income fund that has been in, in this you know, space for a while said that in 2019 was the first year when you could take away government subsidies and wind and solar could actually produce electricity for profit without any subsidies. That's right. Yeah. So that's a pretty big year. Yeah. Uh, we, we refer to that as the levelized cost of energy, which is essentially taking all the cost over the lifetime of the facility, then dividing that by all the power in terms of megawatt hour, kilowatt hour during the the lifetime of the facility and and calculating the dollar per megawatt hour cost of each electron. So solar 10 years ago was very expensive. So was wind. Natural gas fire power plant today is around uh, 50 to $60 all in levelized cost of energy. Solar and wind five years ago was probably double that. Today, without subsidies, they're in the 30 to $40 range. Wind is even cheaper. 
Typically, the capacity factor, meaning how much electrons can they produce, is more than those from solar. So the levelized cost of energy on wind is as low as $20 in Texas, where the wind blows all the time. What have been the technological advancements that have really brought that cost down? Really bigger turbine, taller, yeah, okay. yeah, taller wind. What about for solar? Solar is just efficiency of the panel. Okay. I think 10 years ago, efficiency is probably less than 20%. Hmm. Now is 25, I think, you know, mm-hmm. much more efficient. And, and I, I also have, have read that when we generate all this power, we have a huge windstorm through Kansas. Sometimes you can't run the wind farms because the wind blows too hard. You know, we can't capture all the energy of a tornado. Maybe someday we'll figure that out. <laughs> but when you generate all that power, you may generate more than you can consume, and so you have to store it. What happens to the power whenever it, when it's stored? Is it all to batteries? What do we do with all that excess power? Because we just can't turn the wind on and off at our leisure. That's right, yeah. So battery storage or, or energy storage in general. So energy storage can refer to battery, flow battery, or other energy storage technologies. So that's really the holy grail for the entire power generation market, right? You need to store wind and solar, what we call intermittent resources when they're available. So you can supply the power to the grid when power is needed. So as you can imagine, demand throughout the day goes up and down depending on when people go home, when Mm -hmm. people get to work, they turn on their light switches, Right, so that will fluctuate. And heating and cooling exactly. play into that a lot, and then also, which is a small impact today, but will be a big impact down the road, or electric vehicles. That's right, yeah. So you can't control when people turn on their light switch. At the same time, you cannot control wind and solar production on a daily basis or on hourly basis. So what you can do is store the energy from these facilities and dispatch the energy when demand is there. And you mentioned it's the holy grail. So talk about that energy storage today. What's it like? How long does it stay in, in the batteries when it's, you know, we generate it today. You know, how, how long do we have that we need to get it into the market before it just dissipates and goes away? That market is, is in the infant stage right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the wild, wild west. The battery manufacturers are, are mainly in Asia. So the Chinese, the, the Japanese, the Korean producers. Of course, there's Tesla. I'm sure you all have heard about the Gigafactory that mm-hmm. they, they built in Nevada. So I'll repeat your question again. How long does the energy last in the battery once it's generated? Well, you can store it for a long time, but typically uh, you, you can only discharge it over a four-hour period. Okay. So uh, you, you, you can stack up multiple battery storage modules in order to dispatch over a longer time period, mm-hmm. but the cost to the consumer will be higher. And as we make this shift to electronic vehicles, it's a small part of the market today. We were talking before the podcast, maybe around 1% of the market. I don't know the exact number, but it's pretty small. Yeah. You know, the trend is going to be to the upside to add more electric vehicles to the market that can plug in. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the, the new Tesla truck they just introduced yeah, what, two cyber, weeks ago. The Cybertruck. That's yeah. right. It looks pretty cool, but <laughs> I got to tell you, it's pretty ugly, though. It's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, it is pretty cheap. Yeah, I think the, the, the lower end model is 40000 per unit and the higher end is only 70000 It's very affordable. What was the mileage on that one? I know they're, when they're redoing the Roadster, it's going to have 650 miles on a charge. With three drive units yeah. that they're going to run, one drive unit for the front left tire, one drive unit for the front right, and then one drive unit for the back tires. And it's got a 650-mile range, which is double most of their vehicles today. 
And the Cybertruck has a pretty amazing range as well. I think it's 250 to 350, if I remember correctly. Yeah, pretty incredible. And yeah. they made some, some big leaps in technology and kind of leading the, the charge on this. They sure did. Pun intended. But today, if, if all the electronic vehicles plug in to the grid, and if we were all driving electronic vehicles and went home tonight and plugged in, we'd shut the system down. So there's got to be a lot of facilities built or efficiencies created in this system to be able to eventually have 10, 20, 40, 50% of electronic vehicles on the road. Yeah, I think charging an electric vehicle today doesn't have a huge impact mm -hmm. on the grid yet. Pretty small. Pretty small uh, because everybody goes home, they plug in, it's not a big deal. However, the challenge is a longer range travel, right? So when you drive your Tesla or whatever from Kansas to, say, California, you have to charge your car somewhere in the middle, mm -hmm. and you want it charged fast. You don't want to spend 12 hours to wait for it to reduce. Exactly. You want it to be 5 minutes, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have thousands of cars on the road that all demand quick charging, which require superchargers that have a power rating of 120 kilowatt to 300 kilowatt, if thousands of those cars plug in at the same time, the impact to the grid would be tremendous. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you offset that? That's the challenge everybody's trying to figure out. I think today people are trying to manage with the electricity from the grid. Mm -hmm. And there are also uh, charging stations where they have a battery storage facility mm -hmm. sitting next to it. So that can draw power directly from the power bank. So as the demand for electric, uh, electric vehicles grow, the battery uh, requirement will be larger and uh, we'll have to figure out new ways to solve that problem. When we're looking at trying to get to zero carbon emissions, you know, zero CO2 by, you said 2040? 2040, 2050, depends on, on which state you live in. How are we trending? We're getting there. We're getting there. California is actually on track. They, I believe, achieved, I think, 25 or 30% uh, renewable generation, I think, last year. They're on track to achieve 100% by 2050. Based on my conversations with experts, the first 80% will be relatively easy. But the last 20% will be very challenging, mm -hmm. both technically and financially. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it, you know. That's the laws of improvement. That's Six Sigma in all areas. When you try and drive out inefficiency to get to perfection in a process, the cost per percentage increase at some point over 80, the cost from 80 to 90 is uh, going to be a lot less than 90 to 95, and then 95 to 100 is where you spend a ridiculous amount of money to try and achieve 100%. Exactly. You know, if you look at the electricity rate today, in Kansas, we're paying, you know, 10, 11 cents per kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm. In California, it's more than double that. Wow. And the reason why is primarily of, you know, they have higher renewable penetration, they're using new technology, and they're on track to achieve that decarbonization goal that they've set. But isn't part of that, though, tax revenue? Because if you're not filling with gasoline, you're not getting gas taxes from me, so I've got to pick up my taxes through electricity somewhere. So I either have to bill you by the miles you drive in California, i got to pick up a toll, i got to charge you more for your car, or I've got to get it somewhere to get my tax revenue. Is that built in there, or how are they getting their tax revenue? Or maybe they're not, I don't know. No, I, I think electric electricity rate is purely uh, you know, a allocation of cost onto all the rate payers. Okay. So when they build a power generation facility, doesn't matter if it's solar, wind, or natural gas, they'll allocate that cost onto mm -hmm. all the customers they have in their rate base. I would think, though, as a government, if I'm moving to 20 to 40 to 60 to 80 percent electric vehicles, I'm losing all of my tax revenue that's built into gasoline-powered vehicles today. 
Somewhere they got to recapture that because uh, governments don't like losing their revenue source. Yeah, I'm not a politician. I'm sure they'll figure it out. Yeah, they I'm, will. Yeah, they're going to get it from them somehow. <laughs> Just prefer not to have them in the car saying, "How many miles did you drive today?" Yeah. Okay, well, you owe us a dollar fifty in taxes. Right. That's right. To have that revenue stream because they don't want it to be annual. Today they get it every day. When you gas your car once a week, they get paid. And they're going to want that revenue stream on a regular basis to build the roads, maintain the roads, and that is a pretty major project. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I love renewables. I love carbon-free generation. At the same time, I want my electricity bill every month to be below a certain amount. You know, I don't want to pay $500 per month for electricity. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be a challenge as we approach this 100% renewable goal in 20 or 30 years. How do we manage and balance renewable energy versus a higher cost of that? I mean, of course, renewable energy is trending down in cost. Eventually, hopefully, it will be, it will be much cheaper to build mm-hmm. battery storage as well. But we're getting there. We're not there yet. Realistic is probably 95 to 97% of efficiency. Getting to 100 will be really impossible. Yeah, I don't know. People are but telling me, they want to get there. Yeah, yeah, higher than 80% will be very challenging. It will be. Yeah. So what are the other ways of generating electricity that are environmentally friendly, that are on the horizon, they're either developing technologies or newer technologies that are coming down the line that you see that may fill a spot somewhere. So I, I mentioned offshore wind. We're learning from Europe. We're learning from, from Asia. Mm-hmm. So that market is, is quickly taking off. And the electricity production rates uh, from uh, offshore wind are higher than those from onshore wind. Mm-hmm. So onshore, I think capacity factor is somewhere between 30 to 35%. Offshore, we're talking about 50 to 55%. Oh, that's wonderful. So almost double the electricity production offshore. So that's one technology mm-hmm. that's up and coming in the States. You mentioned hydrogen earlier. That's right. Yeah, hydrogen is, 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 seems to be the market that's always five years away from you know, mass deployment. So where is the hydrogen coming from? Just air and water? Or how, how are they generating the hydrogen? From gas, from water. So there's a technology called the SMR, steam methane reforming. That technology uses a methane or natural gas, and it's a chemical process. So after you run through that process, it comes out H2 and the carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, you generate H2 from that process, but the downside is you also generate carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. Yeah, carbon monoxide being the worst of the two. That's right, yeah. We don't like that so much. We, we don't, yeah. But the, the cleaner technology is called uh, electrolysis. Mm-hmm. So you're making H2 from H2L, which is water, mm-hmm. right? You literally inject power, you know, electricity into water, then that will generate O2 and H2. So that's the much cleaner way of generating mm-hmm. Hydrogen. The challenge is you have to use power in the process, which may or may not be clean today. Well, take all the extra power that you can't use off of the solar farms and the wind farms and use it to make hydrogen. That's exactly right. You know, many developers are approaching the market using that solution, but the cost is still very high today. Two last topics I want to get to. One is nuclear power. Is that just pretty much done? That it's not going to happen much here in the States that we're going to see much in nuclear power? I know that overseas, there's still looking at nuclear, especially in Europe, they see it as a safer technology there. And it's not because of the, the problems we've had in the world with it, that here in America, we kind of don't want them in our backyards. Yeah. So we're not seeing any new nuclear generation facilities being built in today's market for mainly two reasons. Number one is very costly. Mm-hmm. Cost is north of $5,000 per kilowatt. And two, there's the perceived risk, like you mentioned, of, of nuclear power, right? What happens if something goes wrong? A wind tower falls over or a solar panel gets dented, 
you know, nobody people, get are, hurt. people aren't dying. Right, yeah. Uh, if a whatever. nuclear facility melts down. Yeah, like with yeah, Fuku- big Fukushima. Problems. I mean, that was pretty, I mean, it's pretty devastating. That's right. And yeah. they're going to deal with that for years. I mean, Chernobyl is still under concrete, although that was, you know, man-made, thanks to Netflix for, for or Amazon for teaching us about Chernobyl. Uh, yeah, I mean, is that HBO or? it was. I think it was HBO. HBO. I saw it through Amazon Prime. Yeah, it's a great show, by the way. It was a fantastic show. Yeah. I grew up with that yeah, as a yeah. kid and seeing what happened and what went on behind the scenes and actually seeing it was a lot of man-made issues that created that. Yeah. But that's formed in all of our brains that nuclear power is highly unsafe. Yeah, very depressing show, but yes. highly worth it. It was. Yeah. Last part is carbon credits and the carbon trading market that's firing up talk about how states and companies are selling and this market is developing for this the carbon credits market. Yeah, so in, in many parts of the country, there's a, a cap and trade program now for CO2. Mm-hmm. So in simple terms, I won't bore you with all the details, but in simple terms, uh, the government is setting a, a cap on how much CO2 you can emit. And every year that cap will decline. So what that does is forcing you to either reduce your CO2 emission or you have to buy CO2 credits in order to emit CO2. So that creates a market, as you can imagine, if I want to buy, mm-hmm. you want to sell, I'll buy it from you for X dollars, then I can use it to emit CO2. So if California is way under their quota, they have excess carbon credits to sell to somebody that maybe have a highly polluting plant and they don't want to pay to fix it so they can buy the carbon credits from California to offset. Is that how it works? So it will be under state or federal carbon cap and trade scheme. So if I'm a utility in California, traditionally or historically, I've emit 100 pounds of CO2. Next year, I want to emit 120. And guess what? I have to go buy 20 carbon credits to emit that extra CO2. And of course, my cap will go down over time and uh, I think the, the cost on, on each credit will go up. So that will force me to reduce my CO2 emission. This is a, uh, and it's a developing market that's really in its first, what, five to 10 years that it's been around and it's, uh, it's growing in popularity and it's going to continue for between now and 2040. It's just going to accelerate. That's right. Yeah, it's been around in California and the Northeast for many years, but that's expanding to other parts of the country. And the many are proposing a, a federal level tax, uh, tax on carbon or a cap-and-trade program, so we'll see where that goes. Final thoughts you have? Anything that you wanted to to talk about or bring up that you'd find uh, interesting to share with our listeners? Personally, I am a huge proponent of renewables as well as natural gas, but I think uh, we live in a world where if you want to sell something, which I'm selling electricity, right, either renewable or natural gas, somebody has to buy it, right, and the price has to be right. So I I think the market has to develop to a point where renewable energy and battery storage has to make sense both socially and economically for everybody to uh, adopt this fantastic technology. You know, I'm very hopeful that we'll get there by 2050, but it takes everybody's uh, buying in to together. Well, it's the sustainability, it's the renewability. I know there's a third ability, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I know that many of you listening know what that third one is. I can't think of it, but it's important that we have that for our environment where we live at, and I surely hope that many of our neighbors around the world develop a cleaner policy for producing power, cleaning up their environment, and really providing a better space for us all to live in. Absolutely, yeah. Some of those countries are polluting like wild. That's right, yeah. But we'll lead the charge. It takes more than one country to get there. How's the U.S. stack up against the other countries in the world? Are we in the middle of the pack? 
leading the pack behind everybody else on this movement? We're improving and we're getting much better. I think I would say we're leading. We're leading the pack. So if you look at our carbon emission versus where we were 10 years ago, we are much better than where we were 10 years ago. Love seeing progress. Absolutely. In the right direction. Yeah. Kai, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us and, uh, and with our listeners. It's a pleasure to be here, Brian. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, it's Kai Gao, Director of Research and Strategy with Kiwit Power. And Kiwit Power is an incredible employer here in Kansas City, also in Omaha and around the United States. And I love having them as a neighbor to us, and I appreciate them allowing us to have you in to talk today about power generation and renewables. Thank you, Brian. Fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening to Let's Make Work Optional from True Wealth and Company. I'm your host, Brian Sarf. With me this week has been Kai Gao, Director of Research and Strategy for Kiwit Power. We'll be back next Tuesday morning at 5 a.m. Be sure to spread the word about our podcast to your friends and family, and don't keep us a secret. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, connect with us on LinkedIn, and don't ever forget, invest wisely, save early, give generously. Let's make work optional. You've been listening to Let's Make Work Optional from True Wealth & Company. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com or call 913-653-TRUE. That's 913-653-8783. All matters discussed during this program are for informational purposes only. This podcast in no way shall be construed as a solicitation to sell securities or advisory services to residents in any other state than Kansas or were otherwise prohibited. Topics should be discussed with your advisor prior to implementation. Advisory and insurance services offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas.